Hello and welcome to the Space Cave. Uh, Before we get started, just a couple quick reminders. One, this show is brought to you ad-free and made possible by contributions from listeners just like you at patreon.com slash spacecave. Thanks to all of you who who do support the show. Uh, Two, there are new episodes of These Are Those Tapes with me and Wendy Molyneux going up weekly, the most recent is with uh, Allison Rosen, and I'm a guest on her podcast. Allison Rosen is your new best friend this week, but depending on when you're listening to this, this could have been ages ago. Anyway, let's get to part two with the great Casey Hanmer. You you said that you all gave up your jobs to start it. And well, I mean, I'm, I pay people, but like, oh, but, but, they, they had to quit their jobs, yeah. Yeah, they had, they had to come to do something where, you know, it... I would guess it feels good to them. Like I, I've spent a bunch of time earning a living, yeah. and doing something that it's important is, to feel like you're you're a part of a mission, part of a part yeah. of a crew fighting fighting something together. It's really important for you know cohesion and, and morale, uh, especially with you doing something that's, that's as desperate, dangerous, and difficult as what we're doing. I mean, not physically dangerous, but dangerous in the sense that um, you know if if you a lot of engineers I think see see their kind of life's career as like about pushing memes into the universe. <laughs> Well, like, yeah, seriously, like you come up with an idea and then you make it physically real in the world and then you customers use it and derive joy from it. Um, and if you're in startup land, there's just a very good chance that, that everything you do vanishes without a trace. Yeah. Uh, this is, it, it, it is as though you never existed. And the crazy thing is over a long enough time scale that that kind of spreads and becomes general, right? So like it is the case right now that, um, you know, maybe 50 years ago, there were quite a number of different independent automobile manufacturers in Britain um, that all had their kind of very British design language. Um, uh, certain features like, you know, the car will stop if you drive over a puddle. Um, but uh, for, for one reason or another, um, essentially all those companies no longer exist and the methods and processes they pioneered also no longer exist. And modern car designers, uh, you know, often might admire some aspects of, you know, how Jaguar J-Class was designed, for example, but but they would very rarely actually go out and like set up a factory to do it that way. Uh, probably never. Mm-hmm. So essentially, you know, tens of thousands of, of, of careers worth of engineering labor uh, developing knowledge and processes, which is so thoroughly obsolete that it only really exists in a museum now. And you have to know what you're looking for to see it, to see any trace of it. Yeah. Right. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's just humanity, though. I mean, that that's kind of what we've always in some way been doing. It seems now more dire to match design and functionality with purpose yeah so you could you could create a giant bicycle and ride it and that's fun but then after, yeah. after a while the things you design like that people are like hey hey stop it we need to focus we're we're kind of running out of whatever no, it's the important to make art as well me. yeah like I, th- I know a lot of people who um who've kind of you know start off their career as young and hungry often engineers um wanting to prove themselves wanting to find out how good they are a lot of them end up working for an elon musk company sooner or later um because that's you know it's, it's an attractor it's you know if you're, if you're in different fields, you, you have to go, if you're ambitious, you have to go to the place where the best people are doing the best work mm-hmm. to see how you measure up and, and learn from them and compete and introduce your ideas and try out. And after you've done that, especially if you've got stock, what next? Right? Like you may be wealthy enough, you do not have to work. You may be, well, you may be 
skilled enough and you're tired right and you've got a family and and you no longer have that same feeling of passion and drive that got you out of bed when you're 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 just to like fight and fight and fight and fight and fight and they're looking for that again and sometimes they just can't find it sometimes they don't, they don't have a vision for the future they don't have an idea for an, a machine or an instrument that has to exist that will not exist if they do not build it um but in that case you can always make something beautiful and um i say if you know at least at least make something at least increase the beauty of the world right make something absolutely gorgeous and spectacular and and every now and then someone manages it every now and then someone makes something that is just so extraordinary it's almost it's almost beyond even the artist's ability to comprehend it's almost like they got lucky like you have to keep on trying maybe a hundred different failures and then eventually you'd be like oh you know like <laughs> I, was, I was touched you know I, I i for for the brief briefest instant you know my my sight opened to the platonic realm and i i saw something there and i brought it back and, and here it is and people see it and this kind of blows the mind i think leonardo da vinci is rightly revered for having done that on a couple of occasions mm-hmm. um that said you know a good good amount of his work he really struggled with he couldn't make it work a good amount of his stuff couldn't couldn't, couldn't do it um yeah it kind of sucks that that he got old and died uh imagine how amazing it would be if he was still alive like living in obscurity somewhere but if you knew you could look him up and go and say hi and the sort of nepotism we've become accustomed to i'm thinking even of like athletes their kids become athletes and they do really well and you know people that we know as i don't know various other careers that are that are public facing we go oh yeah like they're doing that their dad was an actor and now they're an actor oh actors yeah actors are multi-generational a lot of other professions don't seem to be i think some what if there was like some families produce generations though, of doctors still doing it? Like, well, Da Vinci didn't have any kids. I know, but I'm saying like, what if there was, was this more weird like lineage of people that just carried yeah. that on? Of, musicians, I think, as often lineages of musicians. Yeah, yeah. Um, like Van Halen's son, I think, is pretty talented. Um, and J.S. Bach. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, he doesn't have any living descendants, but a good number of his descendants were. He had like 20 children. Like, imagine, like, it wasn't that long ago. Imagine how, like, bad you'd feel if you were... If you had 20 kids and like you had no living descendants, <laughs> God damn it. I did my bit. Um, <clears throat> like, you know, Genghis Khan has 5 million descendants and I have none. Like, what the fuck? Um, underachievers. Underachievers. Exactly. Um, I mean, I, I think that just speaks to how miserable it was in, in Germany at that time. I mean, like we think of Germany now as a modern prosperous nation, but the reality is that, um, you know, at various points uh, in that, in that era, I think actually just before Bach, but there was the 30 year war. And in that period, like parts of Germany were depopulated by 80%, 80% of people were killed. Or starved to death. Sheesh. Shocking, astounding, right? Yeah. Like, like right now, I, I don't want to underplay it, but like, there's this uh, conflict occurring in Ukraine, and people say, "Well, is it like World War One all over again?" And that's like, no, not really, right? World War One, there were battles in which 100,000 people died in a single day, and I think maybe at this point in the in the Ukraine war, 100,000 people have died on each side or something, so like over three years, something like that, which is um, not great, but it's not quite at the same scale. I just don't think there's enough young people in Europe to die at that scale anymore. They're all old. They're all old. Yeah, the way, and yet to, with a billion people, maybe we're getting better at looking out for. Well, send all the poor off to die. They can just all go. The young kids, like that's it. Well, that was always the, that was always the case. Right, right it was right. always the cannon fodder who were getting killed. But and 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 in my own family's case, the um, the uh, the colonials who were sent sent in and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, to just to be to kill killed and drove by, by machines. No, it's the invention of of mechanized killing. Right? But prior to that point, it was kind of like. No less horrifying, but it was you know, genuinely mano a mano. And, and if you, you managed to stay out of the way of people trying to stab you, you'd had a good chance of walking away. But after that, machine guns and cannons and, and, and tanks and yeah. artillery and shit like that. Like it was just just, just not, not happening in the Second World War, more, more of the same. But actually since the second, end of the Second World War, like global deaths in war have, have dropped substantially, like maybe a factor of 10, if not more. And then actually since the fall of the Soviet Union, another factor of 10. So there was nothing now. 
There's people little, are little always. Here and there. I'm thinking of like the book Abundance or, or places where they put, oh, you know, you have running water and electricity, and that's nicer than Kings and Queens back when. Oh, not even okay. close. It's but, astounding. I reread um, Ivanhoe the other day uh, by Sir Walter Scott. So mm-hmm. that was written in the 1830s, and it's set in um, 1195. I'm going to say uh, just just prior to um, one of the major and um, one of the final pogroms against uh, Jewish people in Britain who actually expelled. So like in in, in Ivanhoe, um, there's a couple of characters who are Jewish, um, but. Um, but actually, you know, th- basically throughout the British Isles, uh, Jewish people were, were expelled for hundreds of years at a time. Um, and and the book is is basically a retelling of like you know Robin Hood and and, and Richard III and shit like that. And and um, but even then, like these these people led dark and miserable lives. Like th- these these people just shocking, shockingly like even even the kings and queens of that era, uh, just appalling. Uh, essentially, the only the only thing that they were any good at or celebrated for being good at was uh, treachery or violence and or, or, or a mixture of the two um and so just just the the uh, the space for for human achievement was noticeably curtailed and, and none of these people had teeth you know like yeah <laughs> just just shocking <laughs> like, a good meal was one where they didn't immediately get food poisoning you know like <laughs> yeah. um yeah it's stunning absolutely stunning and and i think i think that we can actually say that you know we're doing we're on the right track just just even in our own lifetime like things have gotten markedly better and and if i have anything to do with it uh, they're going to continue to get better when we look at especially here in los angeles the the homeless problem so you can yeah. look at yeah. um deaths per battle in in a in a war in a conflict whatever you'd call it the scale the carnage the difference you know fighting things with drones now as opposed as opposed to bayonets yeah and Throughout it all, there's been this drive to make life a little better, a little easier for people. And now that you've joined that fight, I would say, are you worried at all or do you think at all about how the public perception a lot of times is like very negative toward tech people who achieve stuff as though they are, I'll solve yeah. this I'll solve this for all of you and then everything will be good. And people are like, but it took away this. I think people are uh, naturally resist- resistant to technocracy in the same way that, that you know, it's kind of a, a priesthood in a sense. Um and and I think that it is it's astounding, frankly. I, I was always amused when when uh when people will tweet or whatever that like, you know, we're, we're never gonna solve this problem until we institute full communism this time for realsies, you know, <laughs> sent from my iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or like um yeah, the, the, these oil companies I, I that's not about oil companies actually but kind of divisive, but I know like like Apple is wildly profitable, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a, clearly they should share the profits. Yeah. You know, they should we should force force them to redistribute the profits, right? Like the profit is that you can go out and buy an iPhone for thousand dollars. Right? Like that, the profit, like, like, profit is an interesting one because, like, certainly it's the case if you're running a monopoly business and and you have regulatory capture and so on that you can you can actually like kind of do company town shit and and do uncompetitive things that are bad for cu- customers and consumers. But in the case of Apple, you know, they do have genuine competitors. I I, I use um, a Google Pixel, Pixel for example. I'm not a huge fan of Apple products myself, but um, but um, but you know. A company does not become as profitable as Apple without delivering a shitload of value. Right? Yeah. Like the profit is is what what they can skim off the top after they've delivered the value to their customers. And people just do not know. They cannot understand. Most people have no idea how hard it is to make anything, let alone a product people want, let alone a supercomputer in your pocket. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> like it is. Like sometimes people say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not personally direct, but, but like sometimes people say, well, you, you, go, you take an acid trip or something, kind of blows your mind. Like if you were able to understand even for a fraction of a second exactly how all the electrons bounce around inside your cell phone to make it work, it would definitely blow your mind. 
That's, yeah. that's beyond what, what the human brain can comprehend. Um, it's, it's absolutely staggering. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the profit is already shared because you can walk down to the shop and you can buy whatever the hell you want at a pretty reasonable price. Um, and the stuff you can't buy, well, people are working on it, but like, <laughs> there's a few things out there that, that I want to be able to buy that I cannot yeah. actually just in my own business. Um, we're, we're in housing three different systems, uh, electrolyzer, uh, to make hydrogen, a direct air capture system to capture CO2 from the air and, um, and a chemical reactor that, that combines CO2 and hydrogen to make uh, methane, which is a fossil fuel or in that case, a non-fossil fuel, but uh, post-fossil fuel, um, and I would very much like to be able to go down to the shop and buy an electrolyzer that, that did what I needed to do so I didn't have to make it. But, what is, um, uh, 20 years from now, we're where, where, what is, I, so I buy Hanmer products, I buy Terraform Industry products. What does my setup look like? What is the goal for? Yeah, so we're not consumer-facing. Um, okay. So uh, we're not customer-facing, right? So like, okay, actually, I have a almost all the- I have some yeah, sort of yeah, company. Sure. <laughs> so almost, almost all the businesses in the world sell to other businesses, mm-hmm. right? It's just a, a matter of specialization. It's one of the amazing things about a distributed, um, dis-, dis um, non-centralized, decentralized economy. Um, so most likely in 20 years, if you're a Terraform Industries customer, you are a solar de- developer. And so you're putting together a, a you know, solar array. That's at that period, probably like you'd be putting down gigawatts like per day, per week kind of thing. Cause like in the future, we're going to make it bigger and faster. Um, and as part of this uh, job, you will need to go out and buy money, right? Financing. Uh, it turns out you can buy money by paying interest. Okay. Uh, you need to go out and buy land or, or lease land, which is the same kind of idea. Um, you need to go out and uh, obtain uh, solar arrays and engineering services, um, procurement construction services. So most solar developers don't actually do their own construction. Uh, so they, they kind of work with a, a local company which will you know, get get guys in hard hats and, and orange jackets on the ground to like, put stuff together. Although in 20 years, it'll most likely be robots and um, or, or largely mechanized, I should say. Um, and uh, and then, you know, the rest of the machinery balance the plant, the fencing, you know, wires, trucks, et cetera, et cetera, and the terraformers, which is what we produce. And actually, um, I just 3D printed one this morning. I should have brought it to show you, but it's a, basically a glorified box. Um, it sits on the ground and it eats power and, and spits out um, hydrocarbons. And so that's what you would sign a deal with us. And we turn them out of a factory, put them on trucks, drive them up to your site. And um, or you, you take delivery from the factory and drive them to the site and drop them on the ground. Skid mounted system, plug and play, walk away. And, and why do I want the hydrocarbons? Why do you want hydrocarbons? Yeah. Oil and gas? Okay, so I'm, but I'm, what am I powering? What am I? Oh, so, so you're the developer, so you would also sell that, um, you'd sell that gas to an off-taker. So, you know, okay. Soco Gas or another uh, pipeline operator who would basically buy that gas from you and then they transport it through the network and then sell it to an end consumer. So, so you, Dave Huntsberger, would be um, paying for gas at your house if you still use it for cooking in 20 years, maybe it'll be electric, but who knows? Um, but, you know, some, 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 a lot of people are paying for gas for all kinds of reasons. Um, and uh, and you'd be buying it from from your, your your local merchant, who in turn would be buying it from the distributor, who in turn is buying it from yeah. the owner of the project, who in turn has uh, incorporated a machine that's produced by us. So it's and I'm driving past like but... shut down <clears throat> oil rigs, basically to say like, okay, oh, look at that, yeah, look yeah, at those yeah. dinosaurs over there. Now we have, we this. have a couple of pump jacks lying around. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So actually, we're we're, uh, we're working on. I don't know if you've seen our website. Our website is uh, proudly shit. Um, it is. Um, I just did monospace like. Uh, actually, it was quite hard to do it this way, but like ASCII, uh, black and white font uh, website. Uh, and one, one of my uh, interns was like, can you add this these three lines to make it dark mode work? And I was like, okay, maybe. Uh, it's too much functionality for me. It has links. It's like, it's the dream of what the internet should be. It has ASCII art in it. Um, but we will have a link to a um, kind of a, a comic book that we're putting together. Um, and that will, uh, one of the pages in that comic book, which we've kind of already written is, um, you know, kind of a ceremony at the at the decommissioning of the last oil well, which is going to happen in the next 20 years. Correct? Cool. 
um, you know, like a bunch of people standing around with their hard hats, you know, over their hearts, you know, yeah. standing to attention as the as this big machine kind of creaks to a halt for the last time, and we switch it off. I love it. Yeah, it's such a man. I, I mean, this might be a little long winded, but I think it's such a unique look at, like you say, oh, we'll we'll pay you to stop forest deforesting this. We'll pay you to stop doing this. It's not progressive. It's not. Hold on. Let's use the. It's not productive. Right. The it's, paradigm. It's, it's misallocation of capital. Yeah. So if you've got a bunch of money, ideally you want to spend it on the thing that gives you the greatest return, and that's obviously self interest and greed, but also like if you know again up to a constant in like known market failures. Um, the greatest return would be like, you know, put money into something that helps make more stuff for more people. It means things get cheaper, right? Mm-hmm. You increase productivity over time. Um, yeah. And, and that's kind of the major, the major advantage of capitalism is that it aligns individual self-interest and greed with greater prosperity for everyone. So you've, you've looked through <laughs> this needle and threaded it and said, mm-hmm. there's a way through it. Yeah. Everyone's looking and, and look, look elsewhere. And you're like, there's a, there's a way through. We can shoot this gap. Yeah. We don't have regulated do scarcity. Within, yeah. We, we, right, we need abundance. We need to make more shit. Make more all stuff. the stuff that's here. Let's play by these rules that are already in place, although we're we're restricted by certain things that meant well. And, and over time, like the Environmental Protection Act ends up being a hindrance. We'll get around that. And then in the future, in 20 years from now, you say, see, it worked. We just changed. We shifted what the model was. Oh, we're going to fix the Environmental Protection Act. Like soon it was, <laughs> the crazy thing is sooner or later it will get fixed. Mm-hmm. Right? Sooner or later we will have deployed enough solar panels that we can completely turn off our dependence on foreign sources of energy. Even Europe and Asia can turn off their their dependence on foreign sources of energy and on oil, like fossil oil and gas. It's going to happen. The question is, how fast can it happen? Mm -hmm. What what Terraform is doing is trying to accelerate that. And one of the ways to accelerate that is to be active participants in the discussion about how to reform NEPA and CEQA to ensure that the the intention, the positive intention, the externalities of those acts are upheld. Um, And the unintended... Uh, consequence, which is like actually making it harder to protect the environment, is um, is uh, you know amel- ameliorated and, and solved. Part of the problem, though, is that there's this kind of this huge cottage industry now in in, um, in building these kind of five thousand page uh, environmental impact statements that are used to try and protect um, developers against uh, litigation, um, and all the all the participants in that ecosystem, right? The the people who make the reports, the people who are part of the, the litigated litigation, and so on. Um, you know, it's it's their livelihood, right? So they, they're 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 not not all that interested in making it simpler. Much in the same way that Intuit was the the major ops, um, the person who most the, the organization that objected most to simplifying tax code and simplifying tax returns, even though like there's no reason why for for 99 percent of people in the United States essentially to tax that you shouldn't have to file the tax return at all. Right? The IRS <laughs> already knows the answer; they can just give you the money, yeah, or, or take it as as necessary, right? Um, but we'll be dealing with the IRS as well because uh, under the Inflation Reduction Act, um. Businesses like ours stand to make a incredible sum of money from production tax credits for hydrogen and for CO two and for uh, synthetic fuel and for solar power and a bunch of other things. Um, to the extent that uh, if the bill is not amended um, and we successfully displace oil and gas uh, production across the entire of the United States, the IRS will be paying us a trillion dollars a year with a T, uh, which I do not think is going to occur. So, um, <laughs> so I would expect that to be amended, and I would expect us to uh, become good friends with the IRS by that point. Um, but again, it's about it's about um, moving as quickly as we possibly can to get this done. Um, it would just be a, a real shame if you know we finally got NEPA reform over the line in twenty forty five after we're already done, <laughs> right? Like we should, if we can get it done, I think if we can get it done in the next couple of years, it'll make a huge difference. Like by by making a huge difference, I mean it will accelerate the progress of decarbonizing our economy by, I'd say, between four and eight years. And every year that we shave off, will save at least ten million, possibly a hundred million lives, uh, and not not just from like death from climate change uh and that's not counting the people whose lives are not killed but 
uh, but significantly ruined by climate change. Um, so I think, you know, if you if you divide the number of days between between now and when we want to get reform done by the number of people we expect to die if we fail, uh, it's highly motivational. <laughs> it's like it's, it's, it's on the order of 10,000 people per day if we can get this done. So... So like riding out through a meadow and seeing uh, a graduate student in a tent, sometimes we'd stop and talk to them. And, you know, a lot of the cowboys, oh, damn environmentalists. Da, da, da. And they're always studying something in the grass that some moth or some species was dependent on. And they'd fence it off and the cattle couldn't go through there. And they, all the cowboys would be all mad. Oh, we got to take them this way. And, oh, the cattle are destroying the bank, which trickles down and ruins this fish culture, et cetera. Yeah. And then so the cowboys would go, well, that just means that this da 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 is going to happen to the cows, which means the price of beef goes up, which means people can't eat for inexpensively. Yeah. You know, whatever that – some version of that. Oh, it's going to drive the price down or drive the price up. Both are bad. Bad yeah. for the cowboy, bad for the consumer. On one end or the other. Yeah, it's a balance. And it's a balance. And so like when you're putting in, say, solar panels and you're like, we got to get this Protection Act fixed and there's probably a graduate student out there in the desert. I'm thinking of Rachel Chalk, who was on this show, who studies little rodents who might be like, hey, you know, it's great. But when you change the ground temperature, this whole ecosystem changes and now you're kind of met with, yeah, yeah, but what about the people? What about the people? Yeah, so so, I mean, I think there's definitely a concern there, right? And and I think the, the way to approach this problem this question productively is to look at the the you know local and then global or all up effects of of either developing or not developing right so so there's there's, there's there is a cost for standing still mm-hmm. right so so essentially if you say well we need to produce a certain amount of energy um your, your choice is or we can slap some solar panels down in in nevada where yeah there's some rodents and a couple of species of grass and stuff floating around but the overall ecological productivity of that land is significantly lower than almost anywhere else on Earth, except for like glaciated areas. Right? Yeah. Like just, just the total amount of biomass there is very low, and that does not mean that like the, the mice that they don't have their own you know um, lived experience and their own internal <laughs> desire to not die and all the rest of it. Um, but you know, essentially, it is impossible for us to act without having some effect at all. Um, if you do not act, then you know you have to go and have uh, a significantly greater impact in, the, in, in say biofuel production in an, in a part of the world that is significantly higher ecological productivity. So like you know either like one desert mouse gets it or five thousand prairie mice get it. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you have to choose. You have to choose. Yeah. Uh, that any policy you make will always result in, in quote unquote dead babies, as as most governance one on one classes will teach you. Um, and and there's also a human cost as well. So um, you know the the impact of of um, of you know deploying solar somewhere may, may be slightly more expensive in a particular market, but at the same time it will also significantly decrease the cost of energy, which means that the consumer may end up net ahead, um, depending on their relative consumption of beef versus energy. Um, and uh, you know, so all these, all these have to be weighed. But I think it's really important that we understand that, like, for every year that we delay, one gigawatt development of solar kills seventy-two people. So, like, seventy-two people, in my view, are worth more than some number of desert mice, a very large number of desert mice, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, you know, I think I think there's something to be said for, you know, as much as possible preventing outright extinction of various species, but also, you know, frankly, as you know, in Nevada, no shortage of desert, it's plenty, right, and, yeah, and you yeah. do not have to pay for the entire the entire the entire state. I would like to, but you do not have to. Well, when I was a kid, it was Yucca Mountain, and they were going to dump all the nuclear waste there, which they found they a way done. around. And yeah, I mean, I, w- w- isn't in Nevada, and you're like, no! God damn it, Harry Reid, or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> and I love that he went to bat for us, like, we're not a toilet. How dare you? Whereas the solar panels, I think everyone would get on board for. I think most Nevadans yeah, yeah. would be like, you know, it's already... You well, drive for the local communities, you're saying, okay, well, you're surrounded by this desert, which is in some sense picturesque, but you can put solar panels on it and you can't even see them from the road, right? They're, they're very low. Yeah. Um, and now you've taken all that land and now it's it's actually 100 times more economically productive than if you happen to be in the middle of Ohio where you could just farm stuff, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's actually, 
it's a huge wealth generator if if you set up the incentives the right way like ideally you wouldn't you wouldn't have you'd have you know the land the landowners and so on would would receive leases you know essentially money from leases but at the same time like just pouring pouring revenue into communities is better than nothing but it's not necessarily the same as a genuine economic development and you can kind of see this in the oil rich states and stuff it's almost a curse mm-hmm. most most places cannot take their oil money you know they just can't take it yeah. um not not productively, and so one of the actually really exciting things is that solar power production is distributed by nature, um, and so there's you actually incur fairly significant cost increase in the energy for transporting it away from that area. So if you've got really energy intensive industries, and most of the exciting, uh, at least in my view, productive uh, energy industries um, uh, are very energy intensive, um, in particular like uh, concrete, steel, plastics, um, manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, you actually want to put them as close to the solar array as you can, which is one of the reasons why we, our system, Terraformers, it's right inside the solar array, right? Because like we'd end up paying, it's about 15 times more expensive to transport energy in the form of electricity than in the form of gas. So you want to put the That's what I, yeah. The I think in, the, right in part one, the yeah, yeah, I was like transporting, you know, Nevada, that's great, <coughs> but how are you moving it? How are you getting it from there? Yeah, and so Nevada's already like basically a business-friendly state. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason that Tesla went and built the battery factory there. Uh, and and you'd probably see a continued, continued expansion of, of that. And actually, as far as battery consumption production goes, like we are, we are nowhere near where we need to be. Like, we could put a thousand gigafactories down in the United States, and actually, there's many hundred in development right now. Um, we would still have many much demand for batteries. Batteries are, uh, I say this is a free tip. Like, it's very hard to lose money uh, deploying batteries. They they're making. Normally, when you think of like energy infrastructure, you don't think of things that make a lot of money. Usually, it's just stuff that loses money slowly, sometimes <laughs> quickly. Like, you know, nuclear power plant loses money. Uh, you know, new power lines lose money. It takes you ten years to develop, and it lo- then it loses money. Um, you know, if you get an interest-free 50-year loan from the government, maybe you can break even on operating costs, but you still lose money, right? You're not paying for the capital cost. You can't. It's gone. So batteries pay for themselves in less than two years. It's astounding. It's, it's, that's almost credit card debt level, like return. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Uh, and there's a good reason for it. But, um, but yeah, it's, it, we will see a lot more batteries. I think of last time after we finished chatting, you showed me this video of like a little tiny rocket engine you made. And I, anyone that like worked at JPL or like when I would say, are you a rocket scientist? They'd yeah. go like, oh, I realize now I would think when I ask someone if they're a rocket scientist, they say, no, no, no. As though it was so, um, it's such a, an intimidating term. You know, that's a joke. Kids say, oh, are you a rocket scientist? So, you know, <laughs> as an adult, you don't want to have that. Cause rocket then, engineer it, maybe. Rock, yeah. yeah. Like, but I feel like rocket scientists went, you know, the science isn't that complicated. I'm this. I'm a systems engineer. It doesn't sound as well, complicated, but I'm this. Right, rocket science is pretty complicated. But Okay. Um, <laughs> and so it, what I'm getting at is like, you know, rocket science, physics, the you, you read about history, understanding batteries, the electron movement within various types of energy. There's a lot going on as far as knowledge. Yeah. And a lot of people I talk to are like, I just do this. I know this. I know chemistry or I know plants i know you know i know this thing but the the overall picture that you've developed and i would guess worked at to understand how life on planet earth to, yeah you i can mean, just say it. i'm gonna it, it but it's an extreme it's like supersized nerd nerdiness in oh, a good way i mean the limits very, are there like, the limits are there but it's so cool I'm that kind of, like I'm a, just, I'm a i'm a i'm just like a level or two more competent bullshitter than, than most people <laughs> i'm talking to um 
but the, you still have to have a tangible source to reach back to to, to reference terms or numbers or I mean you're baking bread during the pandemic you've done oh, yeah, a variety yeah. of things to just always I got pretty good at baking bread I mean, yeah I, I mean know, I one particular recipe I made a couple hundred loaves I put on about thirty pounds <laughs> and then I was like okay I've got to slow down on this the pictures were noticeably like man this guy's getting really good at baking bread it was really so the, impressive the, I, I didn't go too much in for like the bread decoration stuff but I was trying to understand the kind of like the third order effects on in in the impact on taste so like it turns out that um the way that i was growing the starter like the timing of of using the starter is quite important Mm -hmm. so for example if i fed the starter at at midday uh and then used it in the evening at a certain temperature it would like have fizzed a certain amount but if i used it like an hour later or an hour earlier it would result in in a noticeable change in the flavor um and so i was trying to like kind of get my head around like understanding exactly exactly what that was because it became like I, I could fairly reproducibly and easily make very fluffy light sweet tasty bread right which is fine it's popular <laughs> right my wife prefers the kind of the darker flavors so that was also pretty easy you just wait until it's like really festering and then like you get it but like there's this intermediate peak period where like you can almost get like a fruity flavors or um aniseed flavors um or uh, kind of like vegemite almost uh flavors um and that's just from you know basically different metabolic products of the yeast um that they're in di- relative different relative proportions that itself is in a you know a couple of maybe shot glasses full of of uh, starter that gets it mixed in with the whole loaf and, that's um, sort of that yeah. level of interest in just something that simple to me kind of encapsulates i think a lot of people do that they go oh batteries like cations yeah. anions i'd like to know more and then they don't have either the they're not fastidious enough to well, stick you with a mass spectrometer or something and like figured out exactly what all the chemicals are and then yeah yeah, yeah. that's I how i picture you Nathan getting to like something like very that. very root of it but well, I thought you do that for a hot minute there, I thought I could get like chocolate flavors. Like I thought I could probably make chocolate flavored bread with just water, flour, oil, salt, and yeast. And, and the yeast is a, a, a culture that had actually uh, was originally given by Seamus Blackley, who he collected in, in Britain. So, mm-hmm. but like it's just you know, wild, um, wild occurring yeast, um, naturally occurring yeast. Uh, but I haven't I haven't baked bread now for. I, I did I did probably twenty loaves earlier this year, but but um, I haven't. The starter's gone to sleep. I've put it in the, sh- in the fridge. Having terraform industry, I mean, it's I've been busy with all <laughs> the stuff yeah, I was on. Say, like, and you have three or two children, a third on the way. Yeah, that's cooking. It's busy. I mean, I think that when you're doing all these things, it, it, it seems like it could form into a type of, and I can relate to this, where it feels like, wait, is this like mania? Am I doing too many things? Maybe a little bit. Yeah, I was over the summer. I was not sleeping very much, and I was getting a lot of stuff done. Um, you know, working, and then and then after, you know, you come home, you have dinner, you put, clean up, put the kids to bed, and then. Then your day begins, right? Then, then the fun starts. So then, you know, from maybe eight thirty until whenever I went to sleep, I would stay up as late as I could every night, like literally until I fell over trying to do stuff. And there's a lot of hardware-related projects as well. So I was trying to cast a, um, I, I mean, I successfully cast a number of bronze things, but I was trying to cast a a, a copy of a um, a sword that was discovered earlier this year in a um, in a burial <laughs> in in southern Germany. Uh, we all were doing that from the Bronze Age. Well, it was dated to three thousand four hundred years ago, so that's basically the same time as the Trojan War. Um, so, you know, as your listeners will no doubt recall, um, back in those days, it was Bronze Age. But there were probably some iron iron weapons, but they're not. They don't really survive today. They rust away. But but mostly bronze weapons. And and we have this picture of the ancients uh, that they were kind of primitive, and they definitely lived short, hard lives, mostly under duress. Um, in levels of unimaginable poverty and violence by modern standards. However, they were also essentially modern, especially in their aesthetic uh, conceptions, uh, and they were capable of producing 
extraordinarily beautiful, meaningful um, art. Kind of like I mentioned before, like you know, kind of this person, their neurons did a thing. And when I saw that art, my neurons did the same thing, <laughs> right? Um, and and the, the total space of, of like neuronal activity is is obviously, you know, trillions of times higher dimensionality than you can constrain. So so that's kind of the special thing about seeing art that your brain gets to do the thing that the artist did. Yeah. Um, and you see it and you're like, holy shit, these people must have been quite a bit richer than we than we thought um if they're if they're putting you know a couple of kilograms of of copper essentially uh bronze is mostly copper into someone's burial in this case the the artifact did not appear to have even been used uh it had no no damage of any kind Hmm. Uh, and it was so well preserved it was still shiny wow exceptionally beautiful so i uh i catted it up on you know using uh computer-aided design i drew it in a computer um and then 3d printed it in plastic and then made a, a mold with um a sort of plaster of paris and silica mix and then um and then removed the plastic from the mold and then uh, melted down 1.3 kilos-ish of, of bronze, which you can just buy off the internet because <laughs> back in those days, you have to like break up rocks and melt it. But yeah. these days, you just buy off the you internet. You didn't have to do your own smelting. You didn't have to get it. No, I didn't well, smelt you kind it. of did, kind of. I, 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 I did melt it in an yeah. in a, in a electric crucible, which took about two hours. And then um, and then, uh, and then poured it in and it, it completely fucked up. didn't work at all. <laughs> and then I, I tried again two more times and it, it continued to fuck up. I mean, I got something that was vaguely sword shaped, but it just didn't look very good. And it was full of bubbles and it fucked up. Anyway, and, and a bunch of people who know better than me was like, this will never work. And I was like, fuck you, it worked last time, which it did. I made a, this really nice part for my dad's boat, which had broken. I made a copy of it for him. Um, but, um, and I, not actually, if you actually want to make a sword, you've got to, you've got to hit it with a hammer or it won't, it won't cut people properly. And I didn't actually want to cut people to be clear. So I didn't really care. I just wanted to look nice. Um, it did not look nice. So, so like, have they yeah, in this hard. era of this beautiful sword? Have they for? I mean, they obviously hadn't cast it, and or had they? Yeah. So the process by which it was made um, was forging the the blade, which mm-hmm. itself is about two feet long, um, and and then a handle was cast over the top of it. So sometimes the handle would be made of wood, uh, and in this case, the handle was cast uh, over the top of the blade and secured with a couple of rivets, um, which themselves would be. Um, forged and then yeah. and have it into position oh, i've seen forged in fire i like <clears throat> have you I okay. know you don't watch tv but like the general principle of forging together a blade yeah hasn't changed a whole lot as far as well nowadays you have power hammers and, and grinders and, and right. um, yeah it's actually my next my next approach was um there, there are various online services that will do machining for you which i've used because early this year i was trying to make a geared unicycle and it also failed but um the uh you basically like pcb way or or hubs or whatever there's a bunch of different um Send cuts end or something. You know, a bunch of different online services where you basically upload a file, uh, a 3D shape, and they will machine it for you and, and mail it to you. But they all have these annoying, annoying pro- prohibitions against making weapons, even like <laughs> things that are quite obviously museum pieces, right? Because like the model I sent didn't have an edge. Like the I didn't want anyone to accidentally hurt themselves with it, so I yeah. made the edge really fat and rounded, and they wouldn't do it. So then I I call up a friend of mine who has a CNC in his garage. It's not much larger than this garage, but has a machine about half the size of it. And um, wow. and uh, I said, oh, could you do this for me? And he says, maybe. <laughs> so I give him money, but, uh, but he's, I, he works for me as well. So he's kind of busy. Um, and, uh, but he's, he's a cool guy. Uh, and, and then just yesterday I had this or day before I had this idea of how I might make it work, uh, how I might overcome the, the, um, the gas escape problem. So I, right. Cool. As, as we speak, I'm 3d printing another, ah. another model. So, so the nice thing is you can 3d print the plastic sword with the casting features in it. So like yeah. the cones and the, and the sprues and stuff to allow gases to escape. And then when you form the mold, those are part of the, like encapsulated in the already you don't have to make them separately yeah um and it, actually if i had a big enough kiln i could just melt the plastic right out um pla is a reasonably non-toxic plastic so you can melt it or burn it out uh, in this case i do not have a large enough kiln um so because <laughs> swords are quite long um and then i went on the internet and it turns out you can buy a pretty nice copy 
again, not a real sword, but a pretty nice copy of like any of the swords from Lord of the Rings for about 200 bucks. See, I'm just <laughs> overwhelmed with abundance. Um, it's, it's kind of miserable. I could, but the need for time, I mean, anyone that has children can think about like how early you're summoned awake or throughout the middle of the my night. Kids, my kids sleep through now mostly. So, but even still, and like, I'm due for another one in two weeks. So changing and all getting up and, and they're just both potty trained as well. See, five and time. three, big deal, big deal. Five and three, they're both potty trained. They both uh, talk to each other. They played chess with each other the other day. <laughs> um, they 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 sleep mostly sleep through the night. Um, they yeah, they're pretty reasonable. This morning we went shopping together. They weren't very humble, but they also weren't hindrances. So. Well, I mean, just okay. Around. So you have ideal children that sleep and are quiet. They're pretty cool kids. Even still, you guys. Spend I'm time a very, with them. very unique father. I'm quite proud of my children. Um, <laughs> I am as well, and yet I yeah, know I, I do spend some time with them how well. it's just a challenge. Like what you working <clears throat> in energy is hilarious, and that like I think most humans would say that's a resource I'm short of. I need my sleep. I need when it's I different get kind of energy, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you're staying well, up well is, late at night, and you're when, running a company and managing. When, when my kids were thinking. your kids' ages, I was like just in the I was just like in the thing, but it. it was miserable, right? This was before I started the company. I was I was a JPL. I was still like just just kicking rocks and not not very happy. Um, and but I've since then adapted. Yeah, like you just kind of level up. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, now I'm going to have like 10 kids, <laughs> uh, you know, up to a constant in, in my, how, my wife, how my wife feels about it. So I'm um, surprised. Have you gotten into like rock climbing or something? Usually people take on that. I feel like they start like lifting things. They start lifting their own body. Over I do a little over. bit of hangboarding and okay. I, I've climbed to 510 once. So I okay. Know, like, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That, once that, in my whole life. I should ask you ago. too, if the, in 10 years, you know, your, your name is synonymous with this energy revolution you're on the cover of magazines and, oh God, and it's a, a trillion dollar <laughs> industry. And now people are starting to look at like, well, how are you utilizing that? What are you doing if your bank account has, you know, high billions of dollars in it? Oh, when I get rich, it? what yeah. rich shit am I going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? Well, how, like, funny you should ask. Um, I do have some, some kind of whimsical projects that I think would be fun to execute if I had money to waste, which right. I don't know if I ever will. I think I'll always have productive things to spend money on, but there is a thing I would like to do and that is restore Owen's Lake. So, Owens Lake is north of Los Angeles, um, and it was previously the last remaining Pleistocene lake in this area. Like uh, 10,000 years ago, essentially, all of uh, what is now Death Valley in Nevada was full of lakes um, and forests and all kinds of stuff. So like even the environment they were trying to protect, it's not even all that old. There are deserts in Mexico that are much, much older, that have much more biodiversity. Um, and so Owens Lake was the last remaining one, and it was fed by s- snowmelt from the Sierra Nevada mountains, um, and that water was fairly comprehensively stolen by... Los Angeles in the 1930s. Um, you can read about it. Uh, actually, I think there's a movie of it as well, isn't there? Chinatown. Chinatown, yeah. yeah it t- tells the story of that, uh, and which is, itself is an extraordinary engineering achievement uh, in its way. Um, but the, the consequence was the lake dried up. And actually, this as of now, there's water in it because last year was so snowy. There was so much, so much flooding that the lake refilled, or like partly. Mm-hmm. So, and, and also, back in the day, uh, a lot of Westerns were shot like in the area around Lone Pine. Yeah, there's yeah. a great museum there of the Westerns. Yep, right? So, right so if you think of the Westerns in that whole area, <laughs> the Western period of of American history was only about 30 years long and we've been making movies of it for like 120 years now, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, they did a lot of, a lot of films back there and it's just staggeringly beautiful mountains and forests and, uh, there's a lot of indigenous history there in the 1860s. Um, there's a series of uh, Indian wars, um, in, in some of those mountain valleys coming out of the Sierras, the indigenous people, um, actually planted, uh, yellow nutsedge and other crops. So like one of the the big lies they'll, they'll tell you about uh, indigenous people in this part of the world is they didn't really do agriculture. They, they kind of did um, yeah, digging for, for tubers and, and hunting of animals and stuff, but they weren't quite as, they certainly weren't necessarily as integrated as, as some of the, um, you know, uh, Mississippian or East Coast um, indigenous uh, tribes, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is probably mostly true, but 
again, mostly a consequence of just a harsher environment. Um, anyway, so you know, if you go, if you know where to look, you can still find remnants of like uh, of irrigation that was used to to, to plant these crops um, prior to prior to um, large scale European involvement in the area. Of course, Europeans have been in Southern California for many hundreds of years, but mostly keeping to themselves uh, and their coastal missions and stuff like that. Actually, this part of the world <laughs> has been Spanish speaking for long, and it's been English speaking. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so uh, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to come to the point eventually. There were a series <laughs> of railways that were built up the Owens Valley and up Death Valley. Um, that have since been uh, demolished and taken away. And I would like to rebuild parts of them and refill the lake and put the steamer back on the lake and uh, and replant the forests around that area. Uh, and then um, I can't wait to see the Environmental Protection Act lawsuits when they're like, you want to refill a lake and restore the environment? How dare you? Uh, and then and then have a steam train. And actually, so this 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 uh, this train line actually never went all the way around the lake. It kind of it branched uh, from, it came down from the north and it branched west and east. And the western branch uh, continued south and uh, eventually connected up with existing railways today, um, close to China Lake and Soul Valley, um, uh, kind of in the Inukan area. But uh, rebuild rebuild that section of track and um, and then ride the steam train around the lake. I think that'd be pretty pretty sweet. <laughs> it's like choo choo. Uh, I'm a kind of train guy. Uh, and you know, the, cool. as you go around, you see like yeah. these, these, it's, it's hard to describe if you've never been there. My, my cousin actually is in the process of driving down the Owens Valley now for the first time in his life. He's coming for Thanksgiving. Uh, he's never seen it and it will blow his mind because as you, as you, you currently you can drive or walk or, or, uh, in the future, uh, take the Casey, Casey's train around this lake and every direction is surrounded by mountains. And in the, in the West, there's kind of very tall, um, very rugged snow capped, um, actually the tallest mountains in the lower 48, um, uh, granite peaks, 14,000 feet tall. Uh, in the east, they're kind of slightly lower, um, but still very impressive, um, mostly carbonate-based um, you know, dolomite, kind of yellowish mountains, uh, not not dissimilar to the, the dolomites in, in Italy, kind of blocky um, and with all kinds of interesting colors. And then in the south, there's volcanoes. So you can just like go around this lake and there's just like these mountains and then a reflection in the water and like, ah, oh. <laughs> I like beautiful things. Yeah. We should, we should, like I think, in many ways, uh, what what people have done in California has significantly increased the beauty of the land. Uh, in particular, um, California and, and and Florida have been terraformed uh, fairly comprehensively through uh, large scale irrigation. In particular, mm-hmm. like Los Angeles Basin, where we live, was basically an uninhabited, uninhabitable. It was inhabited, but it was almost uninha- uninhabitable, frequently flooded, pestilential swamp uh, prior to about 1920, arguably to the present day. Um, and we brought water here and we brought electricity here and power and 20 million people and major industry. And we drained most of the swamp. Um, and, and now it's, you know, one of the best cities on earth, uh, if I say so myself. <laughs> um, certainly as from a human perspective, it's, it's significantly, significantly easier to live here than it was before. Uh, and I think we should, we should carry on. Should, should like, there were definitely negative externalities to, to bringing water to Los Angeles, particularly in the Owens Valley. Um, that at the time was barely populated, right? Like rel- the relative populations were definitely in favor of bringing water to to Los Angeles, and then they brought water from from uh, the Colorado as well. That was basically doing the best they could with what they had at the time. They just invented concrete. You know, like, <laughs> they're like, oh, we can tunnel stuff. You know, that the the California uh, aqueduct that comes out from from the Colorado River is mostly underground because because Mulholland got sick of farmers like blowing up his pipes. Yeah. So the whole thing is tunneled. It goes right, almost right under my house in Sierra Madre. It actually, where are we here? Uh, it runs to the north of where we are here. Um, and, um, and, yeah, and, then, and then two generations of Californians and, and Los, Ange- Los Angelenos got uh, fat and happy, assuming they'd always have enough water. Yeah. Well, not really the case anymore. Um, and obviously today we could make water, much more water, much more cheaply, with much less impact on the environment. 
And yet we sit around being like, oh, no, like these assholes who built our water pipes 100 years ago didn't make them big enough for us. <laughs> <laughs> like we have, to, we have to keep on building. And I, I had to adopt that attitude. I, I think you can get coerced into some fears of things that uh, people are going to leave. They're going to move up to where climate change isn't impacting things. Uh, <laughs> LA is going to run out of water. And then I started thinking, like, we figured this out so long ago, how to get water here. So if the oh, Colorado no River water. Up, like, like we're coastal, for crying out loud. <laughs> so, so I ran the math on this because I was curious. Uh, so to the south and east of Los Angeles is, is the Imperial Valley. And in the Imperial Valley, which is where Coachella is held, most people so that how they know it, is a city called um, Palm Springs and a bunch of other towns and um, a major agricultural area as well. Actually, one of the most productive agricultural areas on earth. Um, and uh, it's also some very interesting geology that I will spare your listeners details of. Um, <laughs> the Mexican border is down there and, and also the Salton Sea, which was, um, you know, when, when actually when Europeans first came here, it was, it was full of water because the Colorado River uh, at various points has flowed into this essentially rift valley that's formed by the crust spreading apart. Um, the southern extension of that spread is the Sea of Cortez, uh, you know, kind of between uh, Cabo and the mainland. Um, and... Um, and then and it would overflow and then the water would flow into the ocean and then, you know, the river would then divert to the south and it would be cut off and then eventually dry up and just kind of go back and forth as it has in other, other basins, including even the Mediterranean, um, hundreds of times. Um, but it, it did dry up and then it was completely dry from about 1780 onwards, I think, um, until about 1906, I think, when um, they basically fucked up one of the irrigation canals there and reflooded it. Um, and now it's got, I think, a million, one and a half million acre feet of water in there and uh, and it's not doing very well. Um <laughs> So they had these um, various communities and, and towns that were set up along the shores, but the sea level wasn't, the, the lake level wasn't stabilized. And so it came up a couple of feet and flooded everything. And that went down about 10 feet and dried up all their, all their, um, so they built these big like walls to keep the water out of the town. And then it, and so then from your town, you can't see the lake anymore. <laughs> and then the lake went down about 10 feet. So all their, their harbors and stuff uh, emptied out. And then it got very saline and all the fish died. And um, yeah, it's, 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 not, it's not quite as bad as Mono Lake, but it's, it's getting there. Um, and it would be really nice to, you know, first of all, stabilize its level and second of all, filter out all the agricultural runoff and all the salinity and like, just be like, okay, humanity as a species, we can, we can set by fiat the salinity and, uh, you know, pollution level of this lake and the, and the sea level, you know, the, the level of sea level, of, actually it's below sea level, but whatever of this lake. And then we can develop the area. People can live around it without worrying that their, their investment, their house is going to be flooded or, or destroyed. I kind of um, like the dichotomy so cool. here. So we can do this, but like, this is just the side project. The main project is in that immediate area just to the east is kind of enormous empty land, sand dunes. No one's there, no roads, no, no, no nothing. <laughs> it's almost completely inhospitable. Every now and then someone goes there on an ATV and like burns around and gets lost and it's like they just find a mummified corpse <laughs> you know, like two, two hours later or something. Um, but you could you could drop about 20 gigawatts of solar array there, which sounds like a lot. Um, but again, that's you know one 5% of the solar arrays that we've deployed globally here and it'll take about 10 years to do this project. So it's almost nothing in the grand scheme of things. Um, and then you would connect that to a desalination plant that you have a pipeline going down to the Salton Sea. So you can suck up water from the Salton Sea, desalinate it, and then send the fresh back, right? And then you have a pipeline that crosses the border and goes down into Mexico and picks up fresh water, well, fresh seawater from the Sea of Cortez, uh, removes some of the fresh water from it and then sends it back. Um, and 20 gigawatts of solar is enough to produce 5 million acre feet of fresh water per year, which is equivalent to the total amount of water that California takes out of the Colorado River through uh, mostly two different aqueducts um, that then gets used in in agriculture and, and for drinking um, throughout California. Um, and so then the fact that the Colorado River is drying up and that Arizona is getting bent out of shape about not having enough water and, you know, California has senior water rights and much more power in Congress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, no longer a problem. And how much <laughs> does it cost you? It costs you about $20 billion over 10 years. So like half the price of Twitter. 
<laughs> right, half the price of Twitter to solve water scarcity in California forever, unconditionally, <laughs> fresh water. And also at the same time, fix the salt and sea, which like people are like, oh, yeah, fix the salt and sea. Yeah, it's easier if you don't do it. You know, it's always easy if you don't do it. But like it wouldn't actually, California is so rich and we have so much land and so much energy. And then and we'd solve the problem for Mexico as well. Right, Mexico, by international treaty, gets one and a half million acre feet of water at the end of the Colorado, uh, below some sort of certain salinity. And and the United States has basically thumbed their nose at that for a very, very long time. And it looked like they were going to lose in the International Court of Justice. Uh, and so they like basically fixed the salinity a little bit. But like the Colorado River does not reach the ocean most years. Speaking of environmental catastrophes, like the Colorado River Delta is completely screwed up because the United States takes out about 20 million acre feet of water a year, including in Vegas, I assume. Where did you grow up in... Reno. Oh, the Reno. North, okay. The, the other, the other city, in, <laughs> yeah, the one along with place. Burning Man. Yeah. Yeah, in Nevada. <laughs> um, but uh, on the other corner. But you know, Nevada has basically no no major rivers um, or cities except on the very edge. Um, and that'd be so cool, right? And then, and then in, you know, if Arizona, actually Arizona's talking about doing this right now because they don't have senior water rights. They could they could put a desal plant down in, in Mexico and pump the water up over the, over the divide and then run the water back through the cap, the um, Central Arizona, it Central Arizona project. I can't remember exactly what it stands for. Um, but then the water would be running downhill towards Lake Mead um, and you could extract energy the whole way. So instead of having to like burn a shitload of coal to pump that water uphill, yeah, you could be making energy all the way back down through, through Phoenix and, and, um, and Tucson. And, um, and we should definitely do this. Like, and actually the entire lower Colorado almost is, is damned anyway. So, so you could take desalinated water and feed it back into like Lake Havasu or whatever and then pump that uphill into Lake Mead. And then you wouldn't have to like, essentially like you could develop and irrigate the entirety of the Southern Colorado basin, not just like Palos Verdes or whatever. And, and, um, and Arizona and the rest. And like, you wouldn't, you'd no longer have these like enormously damaging, pointless political fights, uh, international political fights over, over water access because the Colorado is like drying up because of climate change and, and other issues. Uh, you'd have more than enough water. You could take down some of the dams and, and like restore the Grand Canyon. Like I think every, you know, so cool. And $20 billion, $20 billion is practically <laughs> pocket change. Right? Yeah, that's what I've always said. You think of like everyone's uncle or someone sitting around, here's what they ought to do. And a lot of times, you know, you work in an auto shop long enough, you have a good idea of like, they're just, this is so inefficient. The wrenches go here, then they go back here, and they go, why don't we set yeah, a yeah. station here? And then oil changing shops have the hoses coming from above. Oh, this is much better. It took everyone's uncle or whoever decades to just complain and they finally changed it. And when you have ideas like this, where I'm guessing everyone you tell them goes, yeah, it's good. That is good. Well, so it might, it's, you would be unable to do it without Act of Congress, essentially. But, but that like, must be. I'm. I'm. What I was getting at is like starting your own company must feel really nice because like, great to have these ideas, great to have solutions. Yeah, yeah. But man, it takes so much effort and people signing petitions and getting on board and voting and. Well, the job if you're starting years. a company, I mean, actually, I know a number of people who started like um, fusion or fission startups and stuff, and in or, or aircraft startups. In those cases, you do have to kind of do a lot of regulatory interfacing. Just as nature nature of the beast, you have to take that into account. But generally speaking, if you're starting a company. Um, and you you actually want to make money and not just suffer. You want to pick an area that's not insanely regulated, so that you can move your product directly to consumers without asking too much. Mm-hmm. And so, if you if you think of like the major transform trans, transformational products uh, that to build really big businesses in the last however long, the you know, web based businesses, for example, so you know, Gmail, for example, or AdWords, or Google, or or Facebook, or whatever. Um, you know, Facebook did not have to go to like the department of social media and apply for a license in order to just disseminate its its software through the internet to end users yeah um and part of the reason that that government internet websites and and stuff suck so much is that it kind of has to do that Um, you know like it's actually illegal 
in order in order to conduct a survey, um, the government has to conduct a a survey about whether they should conduct a survey. <laughs> yeah, that's like, my kind of. It's like you can. Efficient. I know. I know why that exists. Right. It was done for a good reason, but but um, but at the same time, yeah, like it naturally inhibits productivity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so the nice thing about doing the entrepreneurship thing is you can kind of route around the, the find find a find a new path through the thicket sometimes. But you know, I, I'm quite sympathetic to to Elon Musk amongst many other entrepreneurs who complain that every year there's more more and more referees and fewer and fewer you know players. Yeah. Um, it is certainly the case that that you know, anytime you you find an interesting or good thing, thousands of people line up to be like, no, you can't do that. Why not? Because I say so. <laughs> okay. Well, especially when it comes to oil and gas and stuff. Like, do you like cheap? fuel i like cheap fuel everyone likes cheap fuel okay so like what is the controversy here you know like do you like cheap houses oh, yeah well no i don't want my house to be expensive let's <laughs> not get into that but but um, most people at least understand that that it's an imperative to i mean like the single thing that damaged biden's approval ratings more than anything else was gas prices going up a little bit for reasons outside of his control yeah right like everything else he did barely made a blip but like when people fill up their car every week like <laughs> <laughs> not liking it we, I, thinking of along those lines of uh, politics and – I mean there's so many systems in place and they all intertangle with each other. Yeah. And then you found this – again, this needle, this eye of this needle to thread through to be like, I think I can skate through it, not unscathed. Like there's probably a tremendous amount of paperwork and bureaucracy oh, and course, things yeah, that yeah. weigh you down and then – Well, that's the crazy thing is you know, for, for, you know, a, long, for a long time you essentially had to have a large internal staff to deal with all these regulatory issues. Um, yeah, tax and payroll and all the rest. Uh, and nowadays, there, there's a bunch of uh, internet-enabled, um, service-oriented businesses that can do that for you. So, so we have like you know an accounting partner and a payroll partner and a HR partner and a, um, a cap table management partner and a bunch of other things. Uh, basically, you know, websites that manage that for us, so we don't yeah. have to have. Well, say, it's not that it destroys jobs; it's just that it increases my productivity quite a lot. So essentially. A lot of these functions are still centralized in me and maybe one other team member who can basically handle it in five hours a week instead of it being five full-time jobs yeah. to handle that. And so that sort of, <clears throat> I think of that, you know, in the tech world, people frown at that a little bit where like you come in to a business. I've taken over here in this town and this this company makes whatever. And there's Gladys. She works at the front. She's been here 40 years. People know her. She's part of it. And you come in and you're trying to be efficient. You're like, well, she goes. That we can replace this easily with blah blah blah. Yeah, it might not even be automation. It might just be like we could have a. a it's a tricky, t- tricky position to be in, isn't it? It's, because like, yeah. um, and that's one of the reasons why, why I I think that our kind of economic system works so well. Actually, is that the the political power is ideally not not too involved in kind of direct economic production, although it is a major customer, um, and the laws are set via democratic process and enforced through kind of you know ideally disinterested um you know, impartial judges uh and legal system and so on separation of powers like i'll say the founders are onto something <laughs> the, the founding fathers are onto something um but the economic activity itself is decentralized um the legal frameworks in which organizations and and corporations and all can exist are quite diverse um and the the range of different possible cultures and so on that can exist in different businesses different industries is not not to, it's not one size fits all, right? It's all a little bit different. So you can have like, you know, autocracies and you can have cults of personality and you can have like devolved worker owned collectives and everything in between. Um, and actually, I guess yesterday we saw Sam Altman fired because of 
say a little bit of innovation on that front that may have gone awry um, <laughs> uh, in terms of in terms of like exactly how the the corporate structure of that um, of that entity OpenAI was 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 set up. Um, and and so in this case, you know, one of the nice things about leading a company is that is a certain level of, level of prestige and respect accorded to people who provide uh, employment for people and and who provide them with a useful thing for them to do with their lives and a supportive work environment and uh, interesting problems to work on and tools and so on so they can approach them. Um, and it's a good day when everyone's happy, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, it's not my job to make everyone happy. Right. It's my job to ensure that the company succeeds. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means you have to have a hard conversation. Sometimes it means you have to shoot can Gladys. Um, though you have almost like the number of actual, like real legal restrictions on ways you can solve problems is almost un- unlimited. So, so in practice, Gladys's problem is not that she's useless. It's the problem is that, is that her existing tool set is unproductive and so, or not, not sufficiently productive to justify. So like, I, I can tell a, tell a, an anecdote here, but I'll get, I'll get, I'll come back to that in a second. But like, but essentially the problem is like, you need to help Gladys make the team as a whole more productive than just mm-hmm. kind of sitting there doing her own thing. And she's near time in any way. You can often send them off in, in yeah. you know, feeling like they're appreciated and valued. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it does, does take emotional labor. And, and if you're running a large business and you're, you're worried about something that's going to kill the whole business, it's, you know, sometimes you just have to, you know, break 10% of hearts, layoffs and stuff as a fact of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, an awful lot of businesses fail because, because leaders misinterpret their right job to be everyone's best friend as yeah. opposed to someone who can actually keep the wheels on when no one else will, right? You have to make hard decisions from time to time. To give you an example, uh, a good friend of mine, I won't name him, um, worked at SpaceX back in the day and, um, he was, uh, and is a extremely talented engineer, um, and was asked to solve a major technical problem in the early days of Harker 9 that threatened to, um, basically completely fuck everything up. Um, unexpected problem that occurred late in development would require monumental effort from a team of exceptionally sharp people to solve it. Mm-hmm. Like really tough, but like low chance of success, put it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if you're looking at it, like this is definitely not going to work. Um, so he said he would only do it if he met with Elon and Elon was not all that happy. Even then he was extremely busy about that. And, uh, and this guy said, look, you know, I'll do it. But if I don't work, if it doesn't work, I don't want to get fired. And he says, if you don't get that Falcon 9 on the test stand in eight weeks, not only you lose your job, 3000 people lose their job, get to work. <laughs> right. It's like, like, um, which we kind of, you know, underscores the point, you know, like, um, everyone has to kind of pull together. Um, and, and I think, I think in that moment, um, my friend finally kind of understood the importance and impact of their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the, uh, lack of necessity for kind of the self-obsession with um with like the job security of this particular issue yeah. um because they wouldn't be asked to solve it if it was not really important uh and every now and then yeah i think it's i think it's important to to hire people give them a lot of autonomy and um and a lot of responsibility and also reward the shit out of them when they succeed when they succeed and if they're not succeeding put them on something they can succeed on or move them on but like um yeah i don't think it doesn't it doesn't do anyone any favors just to keep them in a job because it makes it gives you the warm and fuzzies right especially if they're failing in that job yeah um, because you only get you know, 40 productive years in the workforce anyway, something like that. So, um, so it doesn't do your resume any favors to like fail in a job for two years. And I actually felt a lot about, I felt that way a lot about my work at JPL was that I was, I was not really hitting the big goals that I'd set for myself. So mm-hmm. I could have stayed there for another God knows how many years. Um, just kind of gone through the motions, going through the motions, doing stuff that was marginally useful, but it wasn't hugely productive. It certainly wasn't, wasn't, wasn't scratching that itch. 
uh, unfortunately a good friend of mine kind of recognized that that I was I was ripe to be uh, encouraged to start a company and, and uh, basically chip, chipped in a bit of cash to, to get me started and then and then uh, gave me the talk and, then, <laughs> and I was able to reciprocate recently I was like you know he's a he's a very successful uh, entrepreneur but his company has grown up you know like it's it's not gonna if he, if he fell off a cliff tomorrow the company would survive uh, his individual contribution makes that company one of the most extraordinary companies on earth but it's also like the product roadmap is pretty clear and um, I don't I don't believe that that his particular contribution will necessarily I uh, mean the successful failure of the company at this point anymore uh, nor will it dramatically accelerate the progress of that company towards achieving you know its ultimate long-term goals whatever they may be uh, and so it's time for him to to jump off and uh, and do something you know, wow um, better cooler yeah. building zeppelins refilling Owens Lake I don't know um, <laughs> actually I think in this particular case uh, I won't say who it is but but if he's listening he'll know who he is um, uh, that he's very interested in bio- biology and I think that immortality is a problem that humans need to solve um or at least greatly extending human lifespan i wouldn't say necessarily like living a million a million years but if we could we could um you know, bump, bump it up to a few hundred years uh, of of good health it would dramatically solve a lot of otherwise unsolvable problems that we face um but in particular <laughs> the, the demographic collapse uh, is a major issue basically we're staring down the barrel of like the boomers and and, and gen x um uh Aging, aging into retirement and not having enough young people or enough wealth to sustain sustain them. So we need to give them alive. These uh, are... Sorry, you can't retire. You're going to live for another 100 years in, in good health. I'm sorry. Like, oh no, my knees don't hurt anymore. I'm so sad. <laughs> ah, you can't fire me. I'm only 250. Uh, man, these, that's, that's such a... No, but a like, bo- it wouldn't be a problem. Like, so so if, you're, if you're 62 years old and you're, you're pretty poor and you're like, you know, you're probably going to... Your health's not, health's not great. Mm-hmm. And but you're you're holding it together with a minimum wage job at the local hardware store or something, right? Mm-hmm. Your prospects are like, well, I really hope that you know this hardware store doesn't get taken over by some whiz kid who fires me tomorrow, yeah, right. But then you you take some pill, and and immediately your health is back when you're 22 and you have that mental clarity and and you have no reason to suspect that you will die of natural causes, right? You still might like get hit by a car or something, but like generally speaking, like you know humans will be able to. Um, slow down aging to the point that we're winning. Yeah. Right. So like for maybe a year or two, you'd be like, okay, notionally you live 200 years, but like three years after that, we like, okay, it's, we fixed it forever. Right. Um, then, then your attitude is no longer like, well, you know, I've got to hold it together, you know, so that I'm able to afford my medical bills. Like the reason that 20 year olds generally survive without health insurance is that 20 year olds are generally fucking healthy and don't yeah. like, they, they do go to the doctor from time to time, you know, if you're broken arm or something, but like they don't have these kind of catastrophically expensive, catastrophically low utility low impact um procedures that that don't actually make them better mm-hmm. right that just you know keep, keep them alive for a bit um in, in rare cases of course it, it happens but but it, so it's kind of crazy like if you look at a graph of like healthcare expenditure as a function of of um of like the overall expense and then like the overall amount of like additional good years bought yeah it correlates almost perfectly like almost always um the, it's actually the cheap things that do really good things for people <laughs> like <laughs> vaccines refrigeration hand washing um you know, uh, dental care in, in childhood, stuff like that. Um, it essentially doubles your lifespan for free. It doubles your lifespan for less than 10 bucks, right? <laughs> and when you're, when you're 85 years old and, and you need like a liver transplant, like, okay, like you will probably die in the operation. Yeah. Like, and it's going to cost you $100,000 and you're still not going to live forever. <laughs> um, uh, so, so yeah, we need, to, we need to figure out how to solve that problem. Um, but I think it is possible. I, in fact, I'm convinced that it is, is, uh, is possible and in retrospect, we'll think it's not even all that hard. Um, 
given that humans already live significantly longer than than other similar animals um you know like biology is kind of well on the way there on its own uh, i think it's just a little dial we have to find somewhere and whoop, turn it up a bit <laughs> like self-repair dial just whoop, we're good to go <laughs> I like the optimism. I mean, this everything about that. I think hopefully this provides some clarity for people that maybe get mired down or bogged down in like the, the negative attachments to a lot of these yeah. things. And but instead, it, it's a there's yeah. a clarity that provides optimism. I like yeah. that. Yeah, but you also wouldn't be like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm, now I'm now I'm 62, but I'm 22 again, and I'm going to stay 22 essentially indefinitely. Um, gee, I really hope I can continue being like a downtrodden minimum wage clerk in this hardware store forever. Mm-hmm. Why would you do that? Right. You'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to live for 100 years. Well, maybe I'll just go and do like different things every 10 years. Right Right now, this is kind of idea that like you're on a fixed trajectory because you have to study a lot when you're young, when you've got time. And then you have to try and somehow balance your career and, and having a family because by the time you're 40, if you're a woman, it's going to be harder and harder to have kids. Um, and then, and then you know, you have to try and like build up your nest egg so that you can, when you get old and sick, you can have a good quality of life uh, until you die. Um, but that's not the case anymore if you can essentially be like college age health forever. You can just go to college when you're 120 uh, <laughs> and you can have a kid when you're 180 if you want to. And, mm-hmm. and I think that solves the birth rate problem as well. Like I said, <laughs> so right now we're kind of running into this problem where like no one's having enough babies anywhere on earth, frankly, um, because you know, pe- people are living longer and they want to space kids out more and they want to start later and so on. So instead of starting at 20 and having 10 kids, you start at you know 35 and you have two kids and then you know, half the people you know don't have any kids at all. Um, but you know, if, if instead you say, well, you know, you can have a kid every 20 years for, or every 50 years. <laughs> like you will be able to have enough kids over the course of your life to, to kind of maintain the population. So yeah, we should definitely do it. I think there's very good reasons to do it. Some people are like, oh no, overpopulation. I'm like, no, it's not a problem. Like, right now we're staring down the barrel of like uh, a massively dependent population, right? Like half the world's population will be essentially retirement age or older and no one's, no one's there to care for them. <laughs> yeah, like we're, we're seeing this already in, in Japan, for example. Um, and Japan's a very, very wealthy country, so they're kind of able to keep the wheels on. But actually, there's, you know, China is not far behind, and China is far poorer, maybe ten times poorer than Japan. Um, what's the plan? Yeah. <laughs> what, 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 what are we going to do? Um, it's especially when uh, we're seeing this in Britain right now. Like, the seed corn is getting burned. Like, young people are under such a tax, tax, tax a taxation burden in order to support pensions for older people, which are ultimately unproductive, right? You, know, you, you give money away to older people to buy stuff, but they're not actually producing things. So, so like, that, that money the government is spending could be spent on, like, I don't know, improving industry or something, but it's not. It's just, you know, it, it, as far as, like, capital allocation goes, I'm not saying it's not a good thing to do. It just doesn't, it doesn't actually help the economy produce more stuff uh, and make, make the economy richer. And so the parts of the economy that are actually productive, the younger people, are taxed and, and don't kind of own their own home. Uh, can't form families, can't have children, and so on. So, like, basically shooting your future tax base in the face uh, to to kind of buy out the the social obligation of supporting the pensioners that that was made you know a long time ago. Um, and you can't do both, right? You, you you have twenty to four year olds either having kids or they're not. And if they're not, then twenty, thirty, forty years you're screwed. Like in Germany right now, less than four percent of the population of the country is women of childbearing age. Less than four percent. Less than four percent of the country. Half the population is over 50. Wow. Mind-boggling. Yeah. that uh, I, I guess presented with what we see around, I mean, especially in Los Angeles as the homeless population goes up all the time, the idea that like, oh, we need to make more people that we let slip through the cracks and we can't care for, we don't do a good job. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a terrible, it's a shocking waste, right? Like even when I was a kid, there was this idea that there's always more people, right? There's, there's labor, labor, labor abundance. And um, kind of scarcity of work and unemployment is a major problem, and so on. 
I don't think it's going to be a problem ever again. I think that we've, we've kind of crossed the threshold where there's not enough people mm-hmm. in the workforce, especially with skills that are needed anymore. Um, and every single person who's on the, on the street, uh, you know, for every single person who's on the street, there's that same person in an alternate parallel universe where they, they have the appropriate support they need in order to become you know, more fulfilled, more productive members of society, uh, people who, who are part of the, the grand story of humanity as opposed to kind of the flotsam and jetsam on the, on the edge of on the edge of the road, uh, on the edge of life. Uh, and in our, in our society, uh, for better, but mostly for worse, these people are, are neglected. They're not properly cared for. Um, this has been the case for going on 40 years, 45 years now, um, when kind of centralized government funded mental health care facilities were systematically defunded um, and, and not, not replaced. And so, you know, it's not really a surprise in a city the size of Los Angeles, you have 15, 20,000 people who are sleeping rough, having you know, pretty vulnerable, um, pretty terrible lives. Um, and we could easily afford to care for them. Like California is a rich place. Mm-hmm. This idea that like, oh, well, we don't have enough money to go around. It's crap. It's yeah. absolute, absolute rubbish. California has is astonishingly wealthy. Could easily afford uh, to to you know keep these people in in uh, you know we, we we don't have to put them in like you know scary you know um, I can't what they call what they used to call them um, like, men, men, like men, an men, asylum men, asylum yeah, yeah. Mental, mental asylum yeah we don't have to lock them up like that but um, but you know so, something that you know, the more modern version of of something like that where they can get access to medical healthcare and, and, and safe spaces and don't, don't get assaulted and, and robbed and, and, and uh, addiction treatment and so on. Um, actually, it's fascinating that that um, that these uh, GLP-1 agonists, semaglutide and, and friends, um, are so effective at treating obesity, but also seem to be effective at treating other forms of um, say dopamine misfunction, misfunction and, and addiction. Um, hmm. so quite a number of people are reporting that... that um, uh, gambling addiction, food addiction, sex addiction, uh, drug addictions, and so on are curtailed substantially under treatment with semaglutide. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's, there's, there's I one heard that. relatively simple drug that is so popular that that it's almost like noticeably increased Denmark's GDP. Um, <laughs> has uh, um, might make this this you know another, again another one of these like teetering future problems that's kind of just just over the horizon that I worry about. So one of them is like you know climate change and, and carbon emissions and one of them is, is this kind of aging ever aging population and, and another one of these is this like ever uh, obesifying uh, population and, and commensurate health health effects which is almost like the aging population as well because in many ways uh, being incredibly overweight ages you more quickly and and causes a uh, faster accumulation of of deleterious health conditions that um that you know essentially will come for us all sooner or later um and uh and we have this drug now that you know for a lot of people makes a huge difference Right. Wow. It's 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 vastly more effective than than, than fasting or yeah. or exercise or other kind of things. So it was kind of one of these conditions, a little bit like addiction in general, actually. Where, where you know the best thing that we have, um, you know, five years ago is um, you know, just try really hard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, you're addicted to that. Um, you know, have you considered having willpower? You know, <laughs> um, have you considered not being a bad person? You know, have you considered not having this moral failing as a society that we're unable to deal with? My my brother and, and a number of other relatives work in healthcare, and and um, and it, it is really quite sad uh, that that you know some some health conditions we can treat extremely effectively and quickly and other ones we don't don't really yeah understand know what to do with um like uh some like long covid sequelae and, and other kind of related conditions um uh chronic fatigue syndrome and so on like we don't really understand these diseases they're not well studied uh we don't really know how to treat them and so people who who have them tend to come into contact with the healthcare system quite often because you go to the doctor when you're sick and the doctor's like well i don't know what to do with you um your your conditions are I mean, arguably indistinguishable from psychosomatic, you know, there's obviously some, some mind body interaction going on here. Um, they, they quite often appear, not always, but quite often, uh, in, in parallel with other mental health challenges of various kinds. 
uh, and can be treated in some cases by you know, SSRIs and other things like that. But we just don't know. I mean, even for depression, <laughs> yeah. yeah, have an SSRI. It might help. You might as, you might as well kill yourself. You just you know, it's um the, the tools that we have are, are way better than what we used to have, and the outcomes are way better than they were in modern periods. I mean, like why do why so many mental mental ill people running around today? Well, because five hundred years ago they just fucking died straight away. Like yeah. that was it. Um, but but at the same time, it's nothing like you know taking a Tylenol for a toothache or 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 um antibiotics for an infection or something that you know you can actually just buy the buy the pill eat it and get better you know yeah. and, and not die that day or, or certain kinds of surgery as well actually a lot of surgery as i mentioned before it's like really expensive and, and kind of marginal utility but but some some surgeries are absolutely extraordinarily transformational um you know like safe cesareans for example safe c-sections um really big big impact on maternal <laughs> mortality um yeah. I'm, I'm i'm pro that um so so you know what i hope is that is that as we, as we go into the future we we get a, a wider toolkit to deal with uh, these issues so that um, we can help more people in a more effective way than being like, have you considered not being sick? Um. <laughs> I think I started it with saying that like the approach was so the, the kindness, the empathy, the humanitarian element. And I, that just, it's a good note to end on. Cause I feel like that's exactly the, the, we haven't talked about aliens impulse. much yet, but yeah. Um, sure. Fair enough. Yeah, no, I we haven't what yet? We haven't talked much about aliens yet. <laughs> we'll have to we'll come back. We live closer now, so hopefully you can yeah, come true. back and uh yeah, I'm always happy to come on here. I, I really I really enjoyed the previous shows. I thought we, we touched on a lot of cool stuff. Um but yeah, we haven't talked about scrolls, we haven't talked about aliens. This is a preview for the next show. Um <laughs> we haven't talked too much about AI stuff. Um yeah, no, I, I mean, you're such a, a great wealth because like any subject, I, I sometimes I rack my brain like, what if I talk about this? I we haven't talked it. about building cities on Mars yet either. I feel like oh, yeah, that's, last I, time that's we been in the news recently. Bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I think we're getting a better picture now for how that might happen. So. Yeah. Well, let's let's tease it. Stay tuned to the next time. Stay Casey Anders back. We'll be back in five years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told you at the start, especially the start of part one, very intelligent, highly enjoyable conversation. Always learn a lot, a lot to think about, uh, and he says things in a way where it's not you know, contentious or something where, you know, I feel like a lot of these talking heads uh, and shows and just some of the media we've gotten used to um, being exposed to. Now, even if you don't seek it out, maybe you just see it when you're scrolling through a news feed or something where it's so-and-so's hot take on something. And then, you know, people are conditioned to, oh, I got to show up to work today. I, I better come up with something to say to to rile people up. And then that can be, at times... Um, compelling. And it's so nice when someone has read and uh, weighed all of the facts and data and made a decision and and is kind enough to share that type of thinking uh, on this show. I love those kind of conversations. And so if you know people you'd like to be uh, on this show, maybe they'd be good guests, you can email pings at thespacecave.com if you have suggestions for music or beer or anything like that that's the place to do it as always thanks for listening thanks for supporting the show let's get out of here thanks again to casey handmer i think i kept saying kind of slurring hammer because I, I had a little uh, nasal congestion congestion still but casey handmer hopefully we'll get him back and do longer and longer sessions and keep your eye on terraform industries i'm excited to see what they do um, and as i mentioned New episodes of Intercepts coming out soon. I'm always writing that, and uh, conversations like these always help me to think bigger and more broadly 
about some of the elements of the universe in which we live. Okay, here's some music. This is called No Better by Sir Chloe. Hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Game.